Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we are set to explore another topic that is based upon your question. This is Special Topic Thursday, so this is an evening that is tailored to your question. Now, from one Thursday to the next, I take up your question, and, and often these questions fall into certain categories uh, they might fall into the category of, of classic Christian apologetics, where we're talking about the existence of God, or, or something like, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Or maybe we, we take up a question that deals with the more classic Catholic apologetics, where you're asking questions about the Pope, Mary, Purgatory, and, and so on and so forth. Or you're asking me a question about the spiritual life, a, a question that has something to do with maybe something you're going through, and with your permission— I respond to that question on air. Typically, those are the three categories. If you were to go back into my queue, you would see that, generally speaking, the questions you ask me fall into those three categories. Well, every once in a while here on Special Topic Thursday, I find myself in a discussion, a discussion that is maybe brought about by what is going on in the world politically, or a discussion that is tied to a particular feast day. And so, it might not fall in any one of those categories. Well, this past Monday, I was in a discussion, and I should say uh, discussions, because I had several discussions about the significance of the transfiguration. And there were a number of questions being asked about the transfiguration. And so this isn't necessarily a question or questions that came to me by way of email, in as much as they were questions that were asked in person, uh, discussions I had at my local parish. So what I wanted to do this evening is take those questions and those conversations on air because, well, quite honestly, they were fascinating to me. And the discussion discussions were more or less surrounded around one central question. How does the transfiguration help us better understand who Jesus is in his humanity and divinity? So more or less, a lot of our discussion had to deal with Christ's humanity and Christ's divinity, and maybe how the transfiguration helps us better understand his humanity um, and or divinity. Or maybe for some of us, we read the transfiguration and we're left asking more questions, right? Well, this evening, hopefully, I will settle some of those questions, but I cannot do that if we don't get into sacred scripture. So if you don't have your Bibles out, please uh, follow closely. Luke 9, verses 28 to 36. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his countenance was altered, and his raiment became dazzling white. And behold, two men talked with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they wakened, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. 
And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is well that we are here. Let us make three booze, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. (laughs) As he said this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silence and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So quick footnote, the Greek there, chosen, can also translate beloved. So this is my son, my chosen, or this is my son, my beloved. All right, off the top, uh, if we're going to get at this question, how does the transfiguration help us better understand who Jesus is in his humanity and divinity, um, we should tackle the Greek for transfiguration. The Greek, I think, best translates this way. Without ceasing to be who he was, he became something more. Without ceasing to be who he was, he became something more. So for the apostles, for Peter, James, and John, this is the first time, my friends, they encountered the divine in this way, this great illumination. So without ceasing to be who he was in his humanity, he became something more in this illumination, in his divinity, if you will. Just keep that truth as an overarching backdrop. Keep that truth in your rearview mirror as we explore Christ's humanity and divinity. Now, in getting at your question about Christ's humanity and divinity, Considering why Jesus went up the mountain that day, I think would be a good point of departure for us. Jesus went up that mountain to do what? But pray, right? That point often gets missed in our discussions on the transfiguration or in our homilies on the transfiguration. He just didn't show up and was illuminated. No, he went up to the mountain and prayed. You may ask, why would one pray to God if, if one is God? That's a question that came up in my discussion. Well, leaving aside for a moment what Jesus thought about himself, we have to remember that Jesus is a man. And it is as a man that he prays. It was prayer that made his raiment white as snow and his countenance splendid like the sun. Uh, by the way, my friends, If you want to read up on the Transfiguration, I really, really encourage you to go to Father Raniero Cantalamesa. Father Raniero Cantalamesa. You spell Cantalamesa C-A-N-T-A-L-A-M-E-S-S-A. Pick his uh, works up. He wrote a book on the Transfiguration, so I would suggest uh, reading that book first, of course. I am drawing from him this evening a little bit, so... Uh, do pick him up, but I would really, really encourage you to read all of his works. Father Raniero Mesa. he's a Franciscan priest. He is uh, was the pontifical preacher to the household there in Rome, so he was tasked to give retreats to the Pope and, and the cardinals and all of the curie that lived there, so quite a task, right? Uh, so he is someone we can trust, of course. Now, as we talk about this element of prayer— What we have to understand is that in many respects, prayer takes up Christ's whole life. And 
Really, that point alone tells us a great deal about the profound identity of who Christ is as a person. I mean, if you think about it, God, of course, could not have hunger or, or could not have thirst. God, of course, could not have suffered. But Jesus, as the Son of God, fully human, fully hungers, fully thirsts, fully suffers, right? So it is Jesus' prayer that allows us to consider the profound mystery of his person. So important, especially as it relates to his humanity. I mean, when you really get at it, it is a historically attested fact that in prayer, Jesus turns to God, calling him what? Abba. That is, Father, my dear Father, Papa, Daddy, right? Now, this way of addressing God, although not unknown before Jesus' time, is so characteristic of Jesus that for all intents and purposes, we are obliged to see it as evidence of a singular relationship with the Heavenly Father. You cannot talk about Jesus and who he is as a person without this truth. You just can't do it. It's impossible, existentially impossible, because Jesus was always withdrawing. I think on one count, I had 14 times. He withdrew 14 times to pray. The transfiguration was just one of those times, and, and that's just what was recorded, right? I mean, I'm sure he, re, he withdrew many more times. Now here, one might turn to the famous prayer of Jesus found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 26 to 27. Again, if you, if you have your Bible, open it up to Matthew, chapter 11, verses 26 to 27. There we read, At that time, Jesus said in reply, I give praise to you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, For although you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, you have revealed them to mere children. Yes, Father, such has been your gracious will. I love that line. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wishes to reveal Him. So between the Father and Son, there is, as we see, this very intimate, this very close, this very familiar relationship. Now, as we are talking about this, an objection in the form of a question typically emerges. It emerged in my conversation. Why did Jesus never openly give himself the title Son of God during his life, but instead always spoke of himself, insisted as such as the Son of Man? We're talking about Christ's humanity. What about Christ's divinity? I mean, does that not reduce the very thing right, that we are talking about here? Doesn't that suggest there might be a lack of familiarity? You see, my friends, you can start talking about Christ's humanity, but as you do, there are questions that come up. Well, simply put, my friends, the reason for this is the same reason for which Jesus never calls himself the Messiah, Right? Jesus acted in this way because those titles were understood by the people in a very precise way, a way that did not correspond to the idea that that Jesus had of his mission. Ponder with me, if you will. Many were called Son of God, right? Kings, prophets, great men. The Messiah was understood to be the one sent by God who would lead a military political fight against Israel's enemies and rulers. 
it was in this direction that Satan himself tried to push Jesus in the desert, right? Even his own disciples did not understand this and continued to, to dream of a destiny of glory and power in a very human way. So what we are made to see is that Jesus did not understand himself to be this type of Messiah. What did he say? I did not come to be served, but to serve. That, that is not the verbiage of the kind of Messiah that the Israelites were expecting. He did not come to take anyone's life away, but rather, what did he say? To give his life in ransom for many. Christ first had to suffer and die before it would be understood what kind of Messiah he was. This is just one of those salient points that comes to us, not only from the first Christian thinkers, the church fathers, but St. Paul himself. You know, it is symptomatic that the only time that Jesus proclaims himself Messiah is when he finds himself in chains before the high priest, about to be condemned to death, without any other possibility of equivocation. What was the question? Are you the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Son of the blessed God? How did Jesus answer the high priest? I am. I am, of course, echoing God on Mount Sinai. In the end, my friends, all the titles, all the categories with which men, friends, uh, and enemies tried to saddle Jesus during his life appear insufficient. And I think we kind of battle that mindset. Why? Because it's human. It's finite. It's not a disparaging comment as much as it's just reality, right? Jesus is a teacher, but not like other teachers because he teaches with authority and in his own name. He is the son of David, but also David's Lord. He is greater than a prophet. He is greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon. He is the fulfillment to the whole prophetic thrust of, of all the Old Testament, you see. Father Cantalamesa puts it well. He says, you know, the question that the people posed, who on earth is he, expresses well the sentiment that surrounded him like a mystery, something that could not be humanly explained. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have 2,000 years of reflection to help us with this question, who on earth is he? And yet we are still asking the question, as we should, as we should, I have spoken on a great number of occasions, the importance of asking that question. And just not that question, but also who am I in light of who Christ is, right? If we can grapple with the simple fact that Jesus Christ was fully human and divine, entered human history, saved man from his sin, and ultimately calls us to share in the great mystery that is the divine life of God. We are well on our way. But as we do that, there is another question posed. Yes, Jesus says to us, who do you say that I am? And that's what we're talking about. But he also says, asks, who do I say that you are? Who do I say that you are? I have to ask myself that question every day. Who does Jesus say that I am? 
How is Jesus Christ revealing to me more of me? Don't get me wrong. There's lots of stuff that we can do that can help us better understand who we are. And that always starts in humility. But only in the light of the fullness of Christ, who is the fullness of truth, can we begin to understand the fullness of who we are, right? This is the great task before us. Now, the attempt of some scholars and critics to reduce Jesus to just a normal Jew of his time, who would not have in fact said or done anything special, let me make this point clear, is in total contrast to the most certain historical data that we have of him. In the end, really, those views can only be understood as guided by a prejudicial uh, refusal to admit that something transcendent could appear in human history. You know, these reductive approaches to Jesus can never in the end explain how such an ordinary being became, as those very same critics would say, the man who changed the world. You can come to better understand the humanity of Jesus in the Bible, but the Bible is a book of faith, right? So we have to apply that hermeneutic of faith. Hermeneutic is just a word that means to interpret, to interpret in context, right? Jesus claimed to be God. Therefore, we have to approach the Bible with faith. You see, my friends, Peter, James, and John wanted to stay on the mountain because they encountered the divine. But what they missed, what they missed was the necessary mission to come down from that mountain for the salvation of the world. God became man that man might share in God. God passed through all the muck and mire of humanity so as to restore humanity to its proper health. Remember what we have said about the word salvation. Salvatio. Save is the root to that word, to heal. Save is a healing balm, right? The crucifix is the healing balm that restores man back to health, that restores us back to the origins of our purity. Very important truth. This is why we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, that we are called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. This is why Paul talks about putting on the cloth of Christ each and every day, using this language that would have us think about, you know, yeah, we put on Christ every day like we put on clothes every day. The thing of it is, to put on Christ every day is to put on the garment of virtue every day. And we put on the garment of virtue every day because why? Well, we are simply working out our salvation in fear and trembling. And the Greek is very important there because it's in the present tense. We say, well, put Jesus on your lips, proclaim that you are saved, and it's a done deal. My dear friends, I caution you. Take a careful assessment of Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, because working out our salvation is still yet before us. We just can't say, I'm saved, and then go on and sin, and go on and sin in a very grave way. No, that's contrary to the nature of truth itself. James echoes this. Faith without works is dead. To be in relationship with God and not enter into that dynamic of charity is dead. 
right? So there's something much more going on. All right, so the question is asked, how does the transfiguration help us better understand who Jesus is in his humanity and divinity? Well, it's that full disclosure into his divinity. But as I've already noted, without ever ceasing to be human. The transfiguration, my friends, brings illumination into what theologians call the hypostatic union. Hypostatic is just another word that simply means the union, that full and complete union of Christ's humanity and divinity. And the fact that this was brought about by prayer teaches us much about Christ and us. Because the transfiguration is an invitation to all of us. Is it not? Over recent months, I have responded to certain questions and examined certain biblical texts that have had us considering the mystical life. And point of fact, I was pulled aside just two days ago uh, (laughs) by someone from our local parish wanting to talk in great detail about what we have talked about on air as it relates to the mystical life. I close this evening with some of those points, especially as it brings us back into the transfiguration. Here's the thing. We are not baptized into the body of Christ, but the mystical body of Christ, because in a sense, we could say that we are all called to be mystics in this way, without ceasing to be who we are in our humanity, we become something more in God's grace, in the divine. Off the top, I said, keep in your rearview mirror that truth about the transfiguration. Well, here we are applying it to our very own life. And I believe that to be a beautiful thing, that God has given us something called grace that allows us to become something more. We live in an age and a world that is caught up in this transhumanism with the hope of many genetic scientists that we might find a way to to never die again, that within the DNA, within the code of the DNA, there might be something found that would have us living forever. But brothers and sisters, what we always have to understand is that part of the Christian life is what? (laughs) But decomposition. We begin to die even while here on earth. And I'm not talking about that dying to self, right? But no, literally, we begin to lose hair. Our skin begins to wrinkle. Our sight goes bad. All of those things that happen to us in the natural realm are but opportunities for us to realize that, well, we are still human, but while we are still human... God wants us thinking about something else, right? As we begin to physically die here on earth, literally, when we lose hair and begin to lose our eyesight and all the rest, it's pointing to something else. And what it's pointing towards is the next life. So often we are caught up in the ordinary, and the Lord's invitation is quite simple. Be caught up in the superordinary. We're so caught up in the natural, Jesus says, be caught up in the supernatural. We are caught up in serving the body of Christ. Jesus reminds us that we are to do this as mystics because we belong to the mystical body of Christ. It is never enough to uh, talk about Christ's humanity 
and Christ's divinity as something autonomous from our own identity, from our own journey. The whole reason that God became man was again that we might share in God. This is why Peter says we have been called to participate in God's very nature, God's divine nature, and we do this in and through his grace. All right, so very important as we just kind of tease this question out within the context of the transfiguration. You know, I was also asked uh, on Monday about Moses and Elijah. Is there anything more than Elijah representing the prophets and, and Moses representing the law? Well, uh, no and yes. That is the first truth to be had about uh, Elijah and Moses, right? That these are two figures that embody everything that the Old Testament represents. But as it does, we are to see that Christ just isn't the fulfillment, but the fulfillment that at once transforms the law, that transforms the prophet. So as he fulfills and at once transforms the law and, and all the prophets, he invites us to share in the law. He invites us to share in, in this prophetic character of the Bible. And we've been endowed with this very property of sharing in our baptism because we are baptized as what? Priests, prophets, and kings. All of us, all Christians are baptized as priests, prophets, and kings. I speak, of course, priest there in its more ordinary sense, which equates to its sacrificial sense. The prophetic character that we share in ultimately is to be God's mouthpiece here on earth, to remind those who we are in conversation with about God and the mission that God has for all of us. And of course, this kingly grace that we received speaks to the grace of authority. That in God's name, in Jesus' authority, we can do all things. It's not because I've come up with some fancy way of how to do this or that that I'm successful. No, I can only do what I do to the degree that it's done well because I abide in Christ's name, and I live under the banner of his name, his authority. All right? So, yes, he is the fulfillment of the law and all of the prophets, but it's never enough to stop there, because there is the invitation that is put before us, the invitation to share in the law of God and the prophecy of God, mindful that the law of God is relationship, right? This is what St. Paul spelled out so beautifully in his letter to the Romans. The very word law speaks to relationship, and this is how we share in the new law, because the new law is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The new law is the grace of God, and this is what we abide in. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.